April 25th, 2018, and in the capital of California, everyone is talking. Sacramento police have just announced that they've arrested a man named Joseph James D'Angelo. Now, this name might not sound familiar to you, but the many nicknames given to D'Angelo over the span of decades are etched into the minds of just about every Californian. After more than 40 years since his first crime, the man known as the East Area Rapist, the Night Stalker, and most recently the Golden State Killer, had finally been caught. The question was, how? Hello everyone, and welcome back to Keynotes, a miniseries from the abstract where we talk to Mac students and professors about their research. This is our second week exploring the little-known field of biostatistics, and today we're moving away from cancer research and into population studies. Now you might be wondering, what does a renowned serial rapist and murderer have to do with biostatistics? And we'll get there, I promise. But first, we're going to learn how some people are using biostatistics to study marginalized groups, and how this research could address inequity in the present. I'm Catherine Irving, and this is The Abstract. So I think when I first got to college, I knew sort of in the back of my mind that I was interested in math. It was something that just had kind of always come naturally to me, but I really didn't have very much of an idea of what I could do with math that excited me. Kelsey Grinday is a professor of statistics at Mac. Like Christine from episode two, Kelsey is a fairly recent addition to the Mac community, but she's already inspired lots of students to pursue research in her fields. Like pretty much the only job options I knew about were uh, like working in finance or being an actuary or something kind of more financial like that uh, or being a like a high school math teacher. So that's kind of what I started off with uh, when I got to college was kind of going down a math education route and taking some education classes, taking math classes. And I was really liking that path. Um then I took a statistics course my, I guess it was the end of my sophomore year, and I realized, so the reason I took that uh, class was for the math education track. It was recommended for people who wanted to teach, like, high school math. And then I realized after taking that class, I was like, oh, this, this I really like. And so um, I kind of had to reshift then because I knew I wanted to keep taking stats classes and learn more about it. Uh, and at that point, it was just too hard to fit in you know, taking more stats classes and all my ed classes too. Uh, but I realized kind of the more stat classes I took that I really, really liked that aspect and wanted to keep doing that. So I kind of always had at the back of my mind, like, oh, I could, I could be a stats teacher, you know, at a high school or something, or be a math teacher that teaches a stats class. Part of Kelsey's passion for teaching stems from the fact that most people have no idea what biostatistics is. And in fact, up until the last couple years of college, she didn't know what it was either. So that, I think I heard about it first uh, in one of the second or third statistics courses I was taking in college. One of my professors actually had her degree in biostatistics. So I went to St. Olaf, it was a small school, you know, very similar to McAllister, and we didn't have like a biostat course, um, but just the professor had kind of talked a little bit about her experience being in a biostatistics program, um, and she was advertising an event to all of us that was happening at the University of Minnesota, like a, a 
informational event for prospective students, like if people wanted to come to the University of Minnesota and learn about their graduate program in biostatistics. So that was the first time that I like interacted with anybody who was a biostatistician and they had kind of this day of, um, you know, they fed us breakfast, they had professors giving talks about kind of their research. Um, so that was the first time that I really heard about like the types of projects you could work on in biostatistics and got like pretty excited about it then. Um, and so then after that sort of info session, that's when I decided to start looking for summer research opportunities in, you know, statistics related things that would involve biotype data. After that, Kelsey sort of just fell into the field. It um, sort of happened by accident, I would say. I mean, I think I've always been interested in a lot of different areas. So I was like interested in bio-related applications, but also in other application areas. And then I just think for me, it kind of came about from... um, well, I have, I guess, multiple family members who work in healthcare, so I'd kind of always been interested in in uh, things related to medicine and, and understanding that, um, and just the idea of getting to work on problems that I felt like were going to help people, and I feel like that, to me, I see lots of ways that that can happen in bio-related applications, especially working with, um, you know, medicine-related uh data. I think that's certainly true in other applications as areas as well, but I got, I think, particularly excited about sort of the bigger impact, the broader impact I felt like I could have in working with some of these problems. Like Freddie, Kelsey works in a subfield of biostatistics called statistical genetics. So the way that I think about biostatistics is basically statistics applied to any sort of biology-related data. So thinking about developing new statistical methods, but then also applying methods that already exist um, to, you know, any data from biological studies, public health related studies, anything sort of medicine related. So anything with sort of a bio lens, anytime you're working with bio like data um, and bringing a statistics, statistics tools to that. Um, Statistical genetics, I would say, is sort of a subfield of biostatistics in a sense in that kind of similar ideas of like, you know, statistical methods, but applied to genetic data. Going back to some of the early statisticians who developed some of the methods that we, you know, things like p-values and some of these methods that we still use today, um, a lot of that early sort of statistical development was using even genetic data. So, um, I would say that even, you know, statistical genetics itself has been around for a while. People trying to understand like plant genetics, especially Um, some of those early genetic studies to understand how certain traits are passed from um, parents to offspring or not parents. If I don't know what you call a plant parent to a plant offspring. But um, so, yeah, so kind of bringing in statistical ideas there. And so I don't know if that's been around for hundred years or more. Um, And then I think with the type of statistical genetics that I do now and working with human genetic data, that has really kind of taken off in the last like 20 years because it's only been sort of recently that we've had the technology to sequence a human genome and collect all this genetic information on people, you know, even at all or certainly, you know, only in the last like 10 years has it been 
like cost effective. It, you know, the first time that we sequenced a human genome, it took, I should know this too, but it took a really long time, years and millions and millions of dollars. And now we can do it, you know, pretty quickly and for a lot less cost. So now it's really more cost effective to get that data is now that we're seeing a lot of the sort of um, statistical methods that we can actually apply them because we have enough data to look at and kind of do interesting things with. So so that some of the sort of things I do now are a lot more recent um, because of technological advances. So moving on to sort of your research process, um, could you sort of like describe a day in your life as a biostatistician? Like what is your research process? What does it look like? Yeah, so I'm shifting back into research gear now after semester. So during the school year, it's mostly teaching for me. Um, but from a one on a typical research day, I would say I have um, sort of a mix of kind of me working independently, me working, sort of having meetings with collaborators so a lot of the projects that I work on um, bring a lot of different people together so I've worked with for, for example some kind of big research consortiums that are these big sort of nationwide studies you know with big grant funding that's kind of brings together a lot of different institutions across the country or across the world to collect data, compile that data, clean the data, and then analyze the data. So you've got statisticians, you've got epidemiologists, you've got dentists, you've got doctors, you've got, you know, whatever disease you're looking at and the sorts of people that might be interested in looking at, everybody's kind of coming together and bringing their own lens to the project. Um, so when I'm kind of deep into a project, there's usually, you know, weekly or monthly meetings with kind of the collaborators to kind of, so everybody can kind of keep up to date um, on the pro progress of the project. My contribution is is typically in sort of the data analysis part of it. So once, you know, all these people have done all this work to collect all this data and prepare all the data, then I get this nice data set that's ready to go for me. Um, and, you know, we'll spend time making visualizations, you know, making some graphs to kind of explore things that are happening in the data, fitting some models. So a lot of time kind of on my computer, running things in, in R in our studio. Um, and then thinking about how to kind of go from there and, and present those results. So later in the project, it's sort of a lot of writing um, and thinking about how to communicate what we're finding. And, and that's where everybody kind of comes together again and brings their different perspectives and writing kind of different parts of the paper. Um, so I would say it really kind of depends on like for a project where I am in the stage. Like some days it's all sitting on my computer coding and some days it's all writing and some days it's all talking to people. So um, I kind of personally like that variety. I wouldn't want to do any one of those things all the time. Um, so I like kind of getting to do a little bit of each, you know, throughout different stages of a project. So for somebody who's like not a statistics person who hasn't like ever done any statistics before, like, could you sort of explain like what the process is of doing the work that you do? I use, I do most of my sort of computing in the um, software program R in our studio. So one of the things that I like about R is it's free to use and it's something that a lot of statisticians use. And so over time, people have kind of contributed um, new kind of features to R so that, for example, if I want to run 
fit a linear regression model or if I want to make a box plot like I don't have to code that up myself there's like a pre-existing function that somebody else already created that's free for me to use so it's a lot of like googling how do I make a box plot in R or you know how do I fit this regression model and over time you kind of learn like which which commands that other people have already created can I use to do the task that I'm trying to do um and so but that that element of it I really like because you know I don't have a computer science background and it in, intimidated me a lot to be honest when I first kind of started out in this field so I like that you know, there's such a collaborative environment in the statistics community about sharing code and sharing resources so that we're not all like starting from scratch every time, but we get to use kind of things that other people have already developed. Um, so, but I think, uh, you know, the intro stat class that we have at McAllister, for example, stat 155, like the sorts of tools that we learn in the, that class are actually a lot of what I use in my research. So um, it's thinking about kind of similar types of methods just on a bigger scale of having to think about applying it to you know thousands of people and millions or billions of positions along the genome that we've measured so kind of thinking about how to scale up is something I spend sort of time thinking about but um, on a practical level a lot of what I do other people have already developed so I'm just using things people other people have already done which is kind of nice. Kelsey currently specializes in working with what are called admixed populations. So admixed populations, as the name sort of suggests, so are looking at populations with mixed ancestry. So kind of most common examples in the U.S. are um, African-Americans or Hispanics and Latinos or people who we think about these populations that um, were sort of formed by multiple populations that used to be sort of isolated geographically or for whatever reasons coming together and starting to mix you know migration events happening um colonization you know things that were now these populations that hadn't been interacting for many years now started interacting um and forming these new populations with mixed ancestry so you know i think especially in the united states like a lot of us have mixed ancestry of some sort um but we typically i think use the term to to think about um a lot of times the term is applied to kind of think about mixture of continental ancestry. So when you've got, you know, I, for example, am, am a mixture of lots of different things in Europe. And so some people might not consider that admixed in the sense that we often will kind of think about it more on like a continental scale, like a mixture of European ancestry and African ancestry and um, Native American ancestry or these sorts of things. So that's kind of how we typically define it, um, at least for now in the genetics community. But I think eventually I'm, I think people are starting to get more interested into looking at the mixture that's happening on a subcontinental scale, you know, in most of us. has been the case in unfortunately much of medicine genetics has been no different in the sense that most of genetic studies historically have been conducted in populations of European ancestry um, so there in the last like 10 years or so there have been a couple groups that have done sort of systematic reviews of all of the genetic studies that had been published up until you know a certain point and found that 
the vast, vast majority of the participants in those studies were of European ancestry. Um, and so sort of since then, I think in the last like 10 years, there's been a push to try to, um, you know, recruit and um, involve groups of non-European ancestry in our genetic studies so that we can understand, you know, not just what's happening in the genetics of European individuals, but everybody else in the world who also, you know, um, we would like to understand the genetics for everybody. So um, I think that's been a push. We're getting a little bit better, but I would say even still today, like the vast majority still of participants in our genetic studies are of European ancestry. We have a lot of work to do still. And then what have been some of your findings so far? I've worked on a couple studies recently where we had some sort of interesting findings related to um, one study was looking at dental disease and we identified a couple genetic mutations that um, were more common among people with certain types of genetic disease. I was on a study, another study recently looking at kidney function and we found a couple genetic variants that um, seem to be more common among people with um, now I'm forgetting if it was higher or lower levels of EGFR, estimated glomerular filtration rate, which kind of measures how well your kidneys are working. Um, and in that particular study, one of the things that was interesting that we found some of these mutations that were more common among people with um, kidney disease also were more common in among people with some ancestral backgrounds than in others. And so by having some of these then results were kind of novel, like nobody had found these genetic uh, mutations before because these other groups with different ancestries hadn't been included in the studies before. So we're like starting to uncover some other possible genetic causes of disease or potential genetic causes of disease by, you know, now including people who hadn't been included before in some of these studies. Um, so that kind of, there've been a couple kind of interesting like biological um, discoveries that have come out of some of some of the work I've been doing and then um, a lot of what I do too is kind of think about like statistical problems that have come up so kind of learning about like you know these methods that have already been developed like can we use them like do they work just as well for people who are not of European ancestry or do we need to adapt these methods that have been developed for people only of European ancestry do we need to make some tweaks so that they work better um, and these other groups of people that historically haven't been included in our studies. So um, that's a lot of what I've been spending sort of my time on more recently is thinking about some of the changes we need to make to the way we do our studies. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so kind of along with that, you mentioned a little bit that there are some ethical questions whenever you're doing like studies on people um, that you have to con take into consideration when doing this kind of research. Um, so could you talk a little bit about like what kind of those questions are and all the ethical concerns that you need to sort of make sure are all checked out when you're doing this? Yes. Yeah, th there are a lot um, when it comes to genetic data, especially. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, we've been thinking about is um, consent and, and consent to what? So when, when somebody signs up to be in a genetic study, like making sure that you know, they often get these consent forms that they have to sign. Like, what are you okay with us sharing? And something like genetic data is super, super personal. And so even if it's 
you know, de-identified and we, we post your genetic data on, on a website so that other people can use the data too, you know, there are aspects of it that could still be traced back to a person or traced back even not just to a particular person, but somebody who's related to them. Because, you know, my sister and I have very similar genomes. So if my sister uploads her genetic data to, um, you know, some database, like somebody could potentially learn something about me because of that, because we have such similar genetics. Remember the Golden State Killer from the very beginning of the episode? This is where he comes in. For a while, people were really confused as to how Joseph James D'Angelo had finally been caught after dozens of unsolved rapes and murders. The answer lay in his DNA. A couple years ago, um, there was sort of a a famous serial killer, the Golden State Killer, who had gone unidentified for quite a long time. Um, And they were able to track him down many years later because one of his relatives uploaded their genetic data to um, some website and um, law enforcement also uploaded DNA from the crime scene to that same database and they found like a match. This database was to help people find relatives. So they found a match between the DNA um, from the crime scene and this person who had uploaded their DNA and were able from there to kind of like figure out who had committed this crime. To seal the deal, police stole a discarded tissue from D'Angelo's garbage and compared it to the DNA found at the crime scene. Once they had gotten their perfect match, they were able to go forward with the arrest. While most people celebrated the capture of the Golden State Killer, others questioned the ethics of the process and the precedent it set. Catching a famous criminal with DNA is one thing, but what does this method of arrest mean for the safety and privacy of everyone else? I think there's some really important questions we need to think about when it comes to sharing data um, with genetics, that that it's not just me choosing to share my data, but when I share my data, I'm also effectively sharing my family's data or people who are um, even more distantly related to me. So that's a big, I think, a big issue that we're thinking about right now. And I guess somewhat related in in the context of thinking about who has access to this information too is thinking about like healthcare decisions and health insurance companies. Like if my health insurance company has access to my genetic information and they know that this particular genetic mutation makes it, you know, people tend to be more likely to get breast cancer or hypertension or whatever it is, like, are they going to then charge me higher insurance rates because they, you know, know I'm more susceptible or potentially more susceptible because of my genetic background. So um, I think there's some really big questions we need to be thinking about on that front too of like, how do we report these results? Who do we share them with? Um, And how is that information going to be used for better or for worse? Kelsey wants to emphasize that if you're interested in biostatistics, you can come at it from a number of ways, whether it be a background in math or biology. It's definitely a really interesting field, and we need 
more people working in it. So if you're potentially interested, like please do consider um, exploring those opportunities because I think there's a lot of really important questions that still need answering and, and not enough people working on them. Um, I think if you're sort of thinking about a career in biostatistics, like you can really approach that from kind of either side. So my background was in math and then statistics kind of a little bit later. Um, but you could also come to this from with, with a background in biology. Um, and I think, you know, either of those, like you kind of need the other to complement it. So like picking up some biology courses if you're a math major or picking up some stat courses if you're a bio major um, and trying to pick up some of those complementary skills because um, I think ultimately both are really useful. Like you need to know how to analyze the data, but you also need to know where the data come from and what it means and, and all of these sort of important sort of things in terms of the underlying biology. While there aren't any official biostatistics courses at Mac, Kelsey says you can still get involved during college by doing some internships and classes. This is a really, I think this is an awesome field to be in if you're somebody who is sort of interested in math and statistics but wants to work on sort of important problems or if you're somebody with more of a biology background who's really interested in the underlying biology but also like interested in sort of the quantitative side of things I think it's a really good field you know for either of those camps of people and it's just something that not a lot of people know about so um Thank you for having me on to talk about this. I think it's good that I'm glad to have the chance to just kind of tell people this exists. Um, and hopefully, hopefully a few people might, might be interested in learning more about it after this. the cutting-edge field of biostatistics and enter a field that's all about studying the past. And over time, over several years, over several decades, the lake bed begins to accumulate more and more sediment. And so now you just get this kind of perfectly preserved record of what wildfires are happening over time, what pollen is um, doing over time. How can examining the past inform our practices in the present? And how can indigenous knowledge change the way we research? Find out next week. This episode was reported and produced by me, Katherine Irving. Our media editor and audio engineer is Corey Hizuki, and our theme music is by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode of The Abstract and you want to be a part of its creation, reach out to us at kirving at mcallister.edu. Whether you're interested in researching, writing, editing, guest hosting, or literally anything else, we need you. We would love for you to join the team. Once again, you can reach me at kirving at mcallister.edu if you're interested. Or if you have any thoughts about the episode you'd like to share. The Abstract is a podcast from the Mac Weekly, your independent student newspaper. For more news like this, subscribe to our newsletter at themacweekly.com. You follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Mac Weekly. I'm Catherine Irving. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.